What ho, folks! I'm Lillian Crawford, a freelance film critic and historian focusing on women and post-war British cinema. Welcome to the Listen to Lillian podcast, part of an ongoing blog I've recently set up on Substack to develop my research on my own terms. Simply go to listentolillian.substack.com to subscribe for a bumper crop of reviews, essays, and feature articles, with upcoming series including a deep dive into the output of Ealing Studios, dance in the films of Paul and Pressburger, and all things Carry On, James Bond, and Derek Jarman. Each episode, I invite my guests to select a British film to discuss, from the silent era to recent releases. All I ask is they pick a film they think is particularly interesting in its representation of female characters or its approach to queer subject matter. For this episode, I've invited my friend and Little White Lies colleague Leila Latif, a freelance film critic, to join me for a chat. The film she's chosen for us to discuss is Stephen Freer's 1985 drama My Beautiful Laundrette. The film stars Gordon Wanneka as Omar, a young Pakistani man put in charge of a rundown laundrette, and Daniel Day-Lewis as his colleague and lover Johnny. Before I let Layla introduce herself, here's the original trailer to give you a taste of the film. The beginning of a business empire. Nothing but a toilet and a youth club. Constant boil on my bum. How's your foot there? Is it all good? Work now till you go back to college. I'm fixing you up with a job, with your uncle. Like me friends. Bring us in. I will. Only you have to know how to squeeze the tits of the system. Okay. I'll charge you basic rent. Above that, you keep. Jack Kroll of Newsweek calls my beautiful laundrette a sharp, sophisticated, funny, sexy, compassionate picture. A delightful surprise in every way. Oh, one thing more. Try and fix him up with a nice girl. I'm not sure his penis is in full working order. What are you doing, boy? It'll be going into profit any day now. Partly because I've hired a bloke of astounding competence and strength of body and mind to look after it. A partnership of young entrepreneurs. A laundrette as big as the Ritz. Oh, yes. Faced with racial tension. Why are you working for these people? It's work, that's why. Don't get too involved with that crook. Where are those two I don't want my son in this underpants cleaning condition. David Denby of New York Magazine calls it rambunctious, juicy, richly entertaining. My beautiful laundrette is a work of substance. My beautiful laundrette, an Orion Classics release. Hello, Layla. How are you doing today? Good. Not bad, all things considered. Excellent. I just received the latest Little White Lies in the post and Mm. see that you have an excellent long feature in there that you and David Jenkins have been working on. Um, Did you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, it's funny. The film we're going to talk about actually does come up in it. It's um, kind of an A to Z of uh, representations of the diaspora in film. So we kind of look at different sort of tropes and depictions that are seen across uh, many different films. Uh, So things like 
beasts of burden or illegality or voyages and uh, things where that's been picked up. It was really good fun to do. Uh, and it's a, I'm really, I haven't gotten my copy yet, but I'm very excited to read the issue. I loved Minari and I've yes. become one of those slightly pretentious people because everyone says Minari and it's not, it's Minari. <laughs> I will say it correctly. <laughs> okay. I, I stand corrected. I think I think pronouncing it wrong. Um, yeah, I also really, really love that film. Um, as I say, mine literally just, just came through the door. So I quickly had a flick through your feature piece, which is very much in line with what I'm hoping to do with this podcast, which is to sort of just shed some light on perhaps aspects of narrative in British films that don't normally get discussed. Um, I think where British films have normally been studied, particularly in academia, the focus is very much on national identity and what it and what Britishness means in in films, um, mm -hmm. particularly focusing on um, the post-war period and in the case of the film we're talking about today, uh, My Beautiful Laundrette, the discussion of that film is very much about Thatcherism and Thatcherite Britain, mm. rather than perhaps the depiction of gender. And I think, I think sexuality does get discussed in relation to this film, but yeah. I do think that this is a film where national identity is also quite key. Did you want to say anything on that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there's so um, much about this film that feels um, very small in that, you know, all these characters are constantly overlapping with one another and it's kind of set on this one block of this one street. But I think the implications of everything that it's trying to depict are like a portrait of a more complicated Britain. But yeah, I, I can see completely that like, sexuality in this film and gender in this film aren't as complex as the as the ideas of identity are and maybe that's a kind of failure in it because what's really the most straightforward relationship is the one between Johnny and um, Omar and like yeah. everyone else has got a lot more tortured a lot more conflicted with everything else and so the kind of at the core of it there's actually something extremely straightforward in what perhaps in reality would have been more fraught. So I don't know whether that's a strength of the film or, uh, or a weakness that they kind of chose to keep that relationship very straightforward. It almost feels in the film that if there was a complex part of that relationship, it happened before the events of the film, yeah. when they sort of had their previous relationship when they were at school together. And then now it's almost unspoken what goes on between them. And maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's a good thing because many films that do show homosexual relationships tend to focus on sort of the conflict of that and the issue of coming out and, and acceptance. Whereas in this film, it's just sort of, it's very understated. I think there are quite a number of films in, in the 80s that, that were doing that, of sort of communicating homosexuality in a way that wasn't as explicit as perhaps someone, you know, saying I'm gay, putting labels on things. And, and the word homosexual had only been used in film for the first time in what, 1961 with Victim by Basil Dearden. So it's, it's not, this is 1985. So I wouldn't exactly say that gay rights have sort of improved under Thatcher. <laughs> if anything, they've mm. sort of worsened um, since 
67 when it was legalized. What do you make of the way that visually there's a sort of tactile way of filming the scenes between Johnny and Omar? Yeah, I I, I find it be- find it very endearing, but I kind of feel that I can't be objective about it because I've seen this film twice and I believe in exactly the wrong way that I watched it first when I was about 12. And I found the scene where they kissed, I was like completely shocked. I didn't see it coming at all, probably because it just wasn't something that I had been used to seeing. Um, It kind of felt like a plot twist, which I don't, now looking back on it, now that I know that that's the relationship, it seems very signposted from day one. So I kind of wish that I'd seen this in my 20s when I was a little bit more cine literate. And it was able to kind of look at it more objectively because now when I see it, I kind of have this vision of this film as this like kind of horrible Hogarth painting of capitalism. And then there's almost like a Disney love story (laughs) that keeps cropping up between the two men at its center. And I mean, it doesn't hurt that they're both like exquisitely beautiful. Uh, this is very as true. well. <laughs> Whilst everything else in the film is like rather grotesque. Yeah, I mean, it's a really hideous portrait of Thatcherite Britain and of kind of second generation immigrants to London. But there's such kind of tender, playful sweetness between the two of them. Um, I think it makes it kind of speaks to a generation that's emerging at the time. I suppose the people that would go on to become Gen Z that are a lot warmer than the than the boomers. <laughs> There's no journey of acceptance in this film, where there are in a lot of later films. Mm. And I don't I don't know if that's necessarily a positive thing or a celebration of the relationship in the film because it is kept hidden and it's kept between the two of them. But at the same time, it's not really shown to bother them that much, that that is what their relationship is. Well, yeah, well, there's so many people with secrets in the film that are kind of lying about themselves and what they're up to and so many dodgy dealings and stuff. I mean, their secret seems extremely innocuous in comparison. Yes, And it also doesn't seem to weigh on them that heavily. You said you first watched this when when you were 12. Hmm. Why Why did you choose this as the film that we'd be discussing today what's your relationship been with the film um I think it was because I tended to like immigrant stories because my mother's English my dad's Sydney's and I very much grew up between the two places so I liked any sort of depiction of that that I could find on screen um whether it was set in England or America or, or wherever really um and that immediately uh, drew me to it. And I'd read The Buddha of Suburbia who by Hanif Qureshi, who wrote this film. Yes. And, you know, also Daniel Day-Lewis is astonishingly good looking. <laughs> he was- Even, you know, even with bleach blonde hair. Yeah. And <laughs> one of the things I find impressive is he has the exact same level of roots throughout, which yes. having previously had a boyfriend with bleach blonde hair, um, that is hard to maintain. <laughs> Yeah, no, it kind of had all of the ingredients for the sort of thing that I tended to go for in my uh, formative cinematic experiences. I've always had a real love for the 80s aesthetic as well, that kind of fashion or, you know, lighting or music. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the music isn't what one would typically associate with the 80s. Um, in the film. It's it's mostly, Mm. there's the theme music, which is sort of the sounds of bubbling and Hans Zimmer's very early film score work. And then 
most of the music is they use the waltz Le Patineur several times in the film, mm. particularly that really gorgeous waltz scene in the laundrette. And, and there's several pieces from, from Madame Butterfly as well, which are used in the film. If one would think of the sort of music that one would expect to hear in this film, those perhaps wouldn't be it. And Whereas, it's not really what you associate with Hans Zimmer. No, exactly. <laughs> um, whereas when it was put on stage, they used music by the Pet Shop Boys, which seems much more the sort of thing that perhaps you might expect to be used to soundtrack a film like this. Yeah, I suppose there's that difference between if you're in the 80s making a contemporary film that perhaps you have feel that you have a little more freedom, rather if you're making a play now, mm. you feel that you have to really signpost that it is the 80s. Yeah, I suppose that makes me think of Russell T. Davis's It's a Sin and the use of Pet Shop Boys single as the mm. title of that show. Maybe, maybe that, that's what, because it is a, a period piece now, perhaps it does require that signposting rather than using music from the early 20th century, which feels quite incongruous with what's actually going on within the film. No, I can see that. I haven't seen It's a Sin yet. Um, I just feel like I'm not quite emotionally in the right place to be oh, devastated. Yeah. <laughs> do, do not <laughs> watch get it there. in that case. Um, I, I, yeah, I've seen the first four episodes and the, the last two have just left me absolutely devastated. I'm not looking forward to, to sitting through the last episode. I need, I need sort of the week between broadcasts to recover and prepare myself well then how nice that um this i i remember with a film like this the first time i watched it feeling the ending really was a little nothing that it kind of didn't conclude well enough but like now older i do appreciate that it's not a happy ending but it's an open one um and i feel that a lesser version of this film would have ended with um something much more brutal yes it's a really lovely scene where they're sort of splashing water at each other. Yeah, it's it's very sweet. Yeah, it's it's strange because I hadn't actually seen it until you suggested it, which is why I'm mm. enjoying doing this sort of thing because it sort of forces me to watch films that I've been meaning to watch for years and finally to sit down and actually watch it because this is this is one that I've been aware of for a very long time. Yeah, and I suppose I just thought that it was going to be this very sweet love story set in an on So I was a bit no. surprised when it turned out not to be that, especially given that this, it's directed by Stephen Frears, who I associate with sort of the sort of thing that one puts on on a Sunday afternoon to sort of yeah. mindlessly watch something like Florence Foster Jenkins or um, The Queen or th- those sorts of very popular British films that have yeah. been... Uh, no, not where, my... Where, yeah, whereas this this is <laughs> yeah um, this is in his early career, um, and he did what prick up your ears a few years after this as well. Dirty pretty things I, I did really like, and that was I think around kind of the 2010 mark. I think yeah. pre the Queen possibly. But um, yeah, no, he has he has gone in for kind of comforting fare of mm-hmm. late, which seems a shame. Yes, I think I I was disappointed with Philomena that I because I thought he might go back a bit towards sort of something less twee and cozy um and mm. I found that film very much of of that later style that he's had whereas in this in this film it feels a lot more personal and understated and I wonder if that's because 
it's sort of commissioned by Channel 4 and it's intended for television on a very low budget, whereas now his television series, things like um, Very English Scandal and Quiz, uh, have much bigger budgets and it, it becomes a lot more showy than, than perhaps this film is, where everything, as you said before, it's, it's very subtle. Yeah, I think this is probably his best film. Um, I, I, it's one of those strange things that with hindsight, it doesn't feel as low budget as it really was. I did, did a little bit of a deep dive into his production and they spent a huge amount of time shooting it. I mean, for a 90 minute film, they spent six months yeah, it's a very long time. Ridiculous. Um, but, you know, Hans Zimmer wasn't really anyone at the time. Hanif Qureshi wasn't as well known as he is. And this is Daniel Day-Lewis's breakout role. Yes. So whilst it kind of retrospectively somehow feels a little bit more expensive, just with the sort of kind of ensuing careers that everyone had, this was kind of the indie British filmmaking at the time, which is something we've lost a little bit. Yes, everything is so tied to institutions, you know, on the ground, uh, just grabbing a load of crew and putting something together in 15 days sort of thing that the great American indie filmmaking tradition has. But, yeah. you know, we do have My Beautiful Laundrette. <laughs> we do. We do. Um, yeah, it's interesting you saying about this being sort of Daniel Day-Lewis's breakout, whereas Gordon Wanecker as Omar doesn't seem to have had the same career trajectory I mean, certainly not um, the one that Daniel Day-Lewis has had, although he did. I think he played, I don't know if he played Nasser or um, Hussein in the in the play. He, he was playing one of the, I think it was Nasser he played in the play. Um, oh, certainly one I of the older cats. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's nice that he's sort of returned to that, but he certainly <laughs> hasn't had the career that Daniel Day-Lewis has. Which no, I think is a shame. He's had the career that Daniel Day-Lewis has had. Well, this, <laughs> this is true. But I think it's a shame that this is sort of the only role that we can yeah. we associate him with. It's interesting because on the last podcast when I was talking about Bendit Like Beckham, it was the same thing where the white actor had sort of gone on to have do great mm. things after their sort of breakout role, whereas the person of colour doesn't. Oh, yeah. um, Parminda, she, she was on um, ER for like a decade, but then I don't, I can't remember her much after that. Exactly. And ER was a huge show. I remember it at the time, it being like a big deal that this British actress was going to go be the star of ER. Right. But I think there is kind of sadly a thing, especially in America, where they don't really like people to go between film and television. Once you're no. locked into one. Mm. that's it there's no kind of mobility to kind of do any real film work it happens one show everybody gets one George Clooney was ERs and then Paul Parminder was uh you know going to be stuck in that uh, purgatory of television yeah I suppose that's what whereas Daniel Day-Lewis and Kira Knightley have very much sort of had film careers whereas more TV careers there's so many insidious things that go into something like that though isn't it it's oh, the absolutely. it's the roles it's the fact that if you're a white actor you can kind of walk into a lot more spaces right only more genres so um I mean it's like I said nobody else has had Daniel Day-Lewis's career but it's um sad if not unsurprising yeah Definitely. I, d I get the impression that he's not doing the sort of insane method acting that he did, he's done in later films mm. and is sort of been famed for. This feels a lot more genuine and authentic than perhaps some of the, 
I'm thinking in particular of, of something like Lincoln or Phantom Thread, where he's very clearly giving a performance, which works for those films because they're yeah. sort of lavish period pieces. Whereas for this film, if he brought that style of acting, it wouldn't feel authentic. Not that this is a film that's particularly committed to naturalism. Like no. It's quite, I can really picture it quite well on the stage. It does feel quite theaterish in a way. But yeah, he is doing something quite subtle. I mean, and I'm sure it's something he has like the skill to return to, but perhaps that's something that he, you know, just as a young actor, didn't feel the, the urge to overdo it because, you yeah, the sort of confidence of youth that you actually are perfectly capable to kind of stay in silences and understate things. Absolutely. I suppose what it really feels like is a sort of BBC play for today type film, which Film 4 sort of launches its own version of at this time, which this is one of the, this is what, the second film that they do, I think. Um, it's mm. certainly one of the first working title films. So yeah. I didn't it, realise it, it was working title. Yeah. It's, it's and one I would the, not have guessed. It, it's one <laughs> of the first things that they produced. So I, I think it very much feels like the start of something that's come later in terms of independent British film production. Although I don't think there's been much since which is equatable to it. Certainly not. I think now if there's an independent film like this, it will swing towards gritty realism, sort of God's own country, Francis Lee type filmmaking, or the sort of films that Mike Lee used to make, or it will go the other way and sort of have grandiose non-diegetic soundtrack. Whereas this film seems to sort of sit in the middle and we don't see that quite so much anymore. Yeah, I also don't think we see this sort of sexual side of uh, young Muslims very much on the screen at all. I mean, it's the only thing I can kind of think of that's comparable is something like I May Destroy You, where it's like, oh, we're going to have women that are young and women of colour, and they're going to be have like voracious sexual appetites, and we're not going to punish them for it, which, you know, sadly, you, know, you don't see very often. I mean, you don't yeah. see it from young women very often. And I kind of appreciated this film's lack of judgment towards a lot of its kind of uh, more sexually free women. I mean, because there's more than one. Um, but um, it, yeah, I thought there was a kind of a kindness. It didn't feel the need to humiliate them um, because we've got the uh, young woman, Tanya. And then there's the mistress, the yes. older mistress, Rachel. And um, like, I feel that they're kind of treated with like a lot of warmth and there isn't a kind of come, well, there is sort of a comeuppance for Rachel, but not really. Um, but yeah, it doesn't feel the need to punish them, which as a film from 1985 was a pleasant surprise. Because I, uh, yeah, I did think in a way, especially the first time I watched it, that's where I thought it was going. Yes, and it does, it's, it does seem that way. Mm. Particularly sort of the first time we see Rachel, which is in, I would probably say, the most explicit sexual scene in the film. Yeah. So she's very much sort of set up as this, this woman who has sort of caused her, her partner to deviate from his wife. And at the end, she's sort of called out for that. 
but then she she has the comeback of, of saying, well, um, Titania, because you obviously have never relied on a man for your well-being and, and um, financial support. Um, yeah, and if it was a conversation today, she would have used the word privilege. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, that's what she's talking about. And it's true. Like, you know, you cannot judge me for the choices that I've made because I have not had the same options that you have had. So I think that was really nice to see. And even when it came to, you know, Tanya, who's crude um, with, <laughs> you know, flashing people at parties and stuff and you know a little over the top but it, it doesn't then feel the need to kind of hang a scarlet a around her neck absolutely that, and that's crucial because yeah if it was sort of showing the relationship between omar and johnny to be totally fine and then sort of push, pu- pushing narrative blame onto the female characters that would make the film very unbalanced whereas whereas here is sort of it's not saying that anyone is is doing bad things or that you know there's no mm-hmm. sort of there's no ultimate comeuppance for any of the characters um as he would have perhaps got in in earlier films um mm-hmm. for studio standards or censorship reasons where you sort of have to show sexual deviance as being sort of leading them on a path to to some sort of catastrophe but not to say that there there isn't a catastrophe in this film and that there are there is violence and um but that's 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 around the the issue of of racism in the film it's not to do with what, racism and capitalism i mean I, exactly. I mean there's a scene towards the end where a character you know there's some terrible violence but for me the scene that was most upsetting is the one where they're evicting a poor black man from his um i guess his bed set and it really is just kind of the cruelty of Thatcherite Britain, you know, laid bare. Absolutely. I just found that so heartbreaking, and especially um, given the events of, uh, of Lace and um, everything that is happening to um, the Windrush generation in this country. There was a lot of um, sad relevance for the present day. Yeah, definitely. And, and there's when um, NASA gives Omar the job, he, he sort of says, Mrs. Thatcher will be happy with me. And that it's subtle, but it's there. And I think that that would be even more the case for people, particularly working class people watching this in 1985, that, you know, that there is always that undercurrent of the impact that Thatcher has had on these people's lives, where perhaps now that's not quite so evident it requires one to sort of be familiar with with context more, more so than perhaps films made later but set in fact right Britain so things like yeah which there are so many yeah things like Billy Elliot or, or Pride you need to have the scene where someone sort of shouts about how awful Thatcher is whereas that that's not here it's not in this in this film in the same way that Derek Jarman's films are sort of they're, they're targeted without ever being sort of explicit about what they're targeting sometimes they are but a lot of the time it's done very subtly which makes me wonder what this film would look like if it was being made now because the Kamal Nanjiani is working on a television version I worry that that nuance of the political context would be lost if only because they need to it needs to be flagged up a lot more than perhaps it did when this film did was being made. Did you see Mindy Kaling's attempt at four weddings and a funeral? <laughs> I, I did not. That so, sounds well, <laughs> delightful. Keep it that way. Oh, <laughs> no, horrendous. 
Um, yeah, I am. I that fills me with fear. I have to say, because for all that I do like a lot of things about Kamel Nanjiani, and I particularly like his show uh, Little America for Apple Plus, um, I was really made to feel quite ill by the depiction of his own family in um, The Big Sick. I thought yes. he treated the white family in that film so differently to how he did his own supposedly his own parents and brothers and sisters and they were just sort of really like two-dimensional ridiculous and kind of unintelligent unnuanced characters I, I did not like that film at all um so I'm worried but people learn and improve as filmmakers so it might not be all bad. Yeah, it's strange because this is this is a fairly short film. Um, it's a nice, mm. neat 90 minutes long, whereas a TV series, the implication of that would be that this would be possibly even over several hours. So I don't know what would be added if it was being yeah. made now. But perhaps, perhaps it would go further in its portrayal of homosexuality. Perhaps it would develop that arc more than the film is able to within its runtime. It might not even be set in the 80s. I don't, I don't know. There, I, there is there's very little information about it, as with all projects begun um, yeah, but I just pre-COVID, under-COVID. Such... It's, it's yeah. taking a lot longer to, to develop. I don't know how you could... I mean, again, I'm not a filmmaker, so maybe this is my lack of imagination, but to me, this is so, so a portrait of, like, an ecosystem where... And I keep coming back to, like, just images of Hogarth where it's like it's all monstrous, but it's monstrous as a whole rather than any one person that's like the cause of some great evil. That to me is so specific to Thatcherite Britain that, I mean, there's plenty of societal ills nowadays, but then in that case, just make a new film, make a new TV series. Like in what way does it, is it my beautiful laundrette if you're missing out what is at the core of this? Yes, and I, if, you are going to set it in the modern day. I don't know how much a laundrette would sort of be a relevant setting for a film like this. It feels very period specific as sort of... Well, unless they set it in New York, I suppose there are. Yeah. Then oh be... God, they're going to set it in New York, aren't they? They're going to yeah, <laughs> call it My Beautiful Laundromat, which doesn't quite have the same ring Ugh. to it. Um, I put good money on that's what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, because this does feel like a very personal film particularly in the way that it's it's written it it has a biographical feel to it and i'm and i'm sure that that's what sort of no that is i did read that hanif qureshi did um base the two the two older brothers the father and the uncle on his uncles right and um he spent every day on set with them which is unusual kind of making sure that everything was authentic because something that hasn't aged that well none of the cast are actually pakistani which i think nowadays at least is not something we would do no well hopefully as this is biographical i wonder if that's what sort of inspired frias to make his own biographical film shortly afterwards have you have you seen pre cup yours uh no no, me neither. <laughs> we, won't, we won't discuss that then. Well, I suggest it's probably not as good. <laughs> um, yes, certainly Procut Yores hasn't had the same retrospective celebration as this film has. Mm. Um, this is a film that very much, is it pretty much always included on lists of 
the greatest British films. I recently did a, a thing in the Mank issue of Little White Lies on the history of the, the film canon. So I was looking at a lot of sort I of... I know, I've read it forwards and backwards. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did read a lot of those sorts of lists and things. And the BFI lists are interesting in the fact that they've sort of felt the need to have the, the big pole of like the greatest films ever and then the ones for mm-hmm. British films separately because British films don't really feature so strongly on the list of the 250 greatest films whereas on the British films list My Beautiful Laundrette comes in a bang in the middle of the top 100 at 50. So, so I think it is something that it is a film that continues to be celebrated and talked about more so than Bend It Like Beckham as I was we, I was talking about with with Tia a lot in the last episode. Um, I think I was just so the exact demographic for Bend It Like Beckham that it's one of those things that for me it did seem like this really huge film because I was a teenager who was buying a lot of film magazines at the time, um, living with a boarding school that was extremely multicultural. Like this was our film. So for me, the two biggest hits of that time above anything were... Uh, bend it like Beckham and bring it on. Yes. And I, I don't think of anything as being a bigger blockbuster than these films, which is completely inaccurate, but that is my kind oh. of Rashomon version. Of yeah, the, because uh, I, 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 as, as someone who sort of w- would have come into looking at films quite a bit after the release of, of bend it like Beckham, because mm. I was four when it came out. So it, it doesn't feel, if I think of film, British films that have sort of are constantly being discussed and, and brought up again, I would very much say that My Beautiful Laundrette is, is one of them rather than, rather than Bent It Like Beckham. I wonder why that is. Maybe because films made since 2000 tend to sort of be dismissed. Um, I'm thinking mm-hmm. of um, Scorsese's latest essay about sort of older films that there, there seems to be if, if a film is made before 2000 it's like this sort of exalted work of art whereas whereas if it's if it's recently made it's sort of content, content. exactly <laughs> um, so so maybe maybe that's why a film like my beautiful laundrette would be considered a pioneer of independent filmmaking when of course it's just as much content as anything that any channel releases now because it's it was it was made it was commissioned by film for for channel yeah. four and but but it still had that sort of independent filmmaking feel and style to it it is interesting when kind of you know now i'm 32 and i've kind of things are coming around again and you see all these things that weren't very good from your youth being like exalted as, as classics on buzzfeed and there's that slight thing that it is interesting like what what your piece talked about like the things that history picks out and so much of it is just nostalgia it seems even though we try and kind of hold ourselves above it that does seem to be like an embarrassing factor but I mean there's so much of that there's so much group think around like what are the films that are classics I mean awards season is just ridiculous for that like the fact that every award body last year felt that the best supporting actress of the entire year was definitely Laura Dern's for Marriage Story and that just felt to me like such an arbitrary choice yes very much so it's just like no we have all decided this is it yeah <laughs> just because no, she's so endearing in the way she orders I mean like she's perfectly good in that film yeah. I just find it insane that there is like such a unified thinking yes. on that 
And it's the same way with these polls that after all of these decades and all of these things that we're going to diversify and we're going to bring in new people and we're going to re-examine things, but it's just like, no, citizen came. Yeah. Yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. Is it Vertigo at the moment? Well, they're voting on it again soon, aren't they? Yeah, 2022. Will it be Citizen Kane or will it be Vertigo? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, nail-biting stuff. <laughs> but who knows? They they might change. The, they Every time it depends on how they decide to select the people who vote for it. So mm. in, the, in the last one, when it was Vertigo, they had a lot more people voting. Um, and there was a sort of concerted effort to topple Citizen Kane. I don't, I don't think that should be taken terribly seriously. I feel like when they do something like the top 100 British films, that's more an opportunity for people to sort of celebrate films which might otherwise be left out of a, of, of a list like the greatest films ever. I find it interesting you talking about the nostalgia that people feel for, for certain films that maybe mm. weren't considered great at the time and and the biggest one I think for sort of young people now is is the 1980s and and the sort of aesthetic of the 80s not not so much British films but more um John Hughes rom-coms and things like The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller and and that's seen in in shows like Sex Education where it's got this weird sort of um quasi-British John Hughes American high school aesthetic but it's set in like Kent or somewhere yeah. I don't know so so I, um, I I do I wonder whether a film like My Beautiful Laundrette would be a part of that or why perhaps it's excluded there's also a kind of slight curiosity to see um Daniel Day-Lewis's debut given that his sort of yeah you know status as a kind of peculiar national treasure yeah because people love to work through a filmography or a, or a list of something so the, the fact that people as, as we've said Hans Zimmer, Stephen Frears, um, mm. Daniel Day-Lewis have all gone on to have really big careers maybe that's why people return to this film more so than they would other films again it's yeah. all the men <laughs> the white yeah. men in particular yeah, um, yeah. What, whereas you but... know there aren't so many Gurinda Chadha retrospectives, for example, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe exactly. Yeah. <laughs> when I'm in charge, uh, yes. <laughs> I, was, I was curious, given that like you are so knowledgeable about this subject matter, that I think this film is quite interesting. Also, because what's clear to me is that Omar is more sexually fluid than he is yeah. um, a closeted gay man, yeah. and that felt progressive to me because I, I think we were more used to seeing things along a kind of clearer binary back yeah. then but is that unusual or is that actually something that we weren't sort of did appreciate in the 80s film wise? I would actually say that it's more that we see sort of established binaries of sexuality coming out more in recent films and actually where homosexuality was shown particularly in British films it was more fluid or mm. um, because so talking about victim again 61 which is sort of the first major film which really deals with 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 homosexuality on film Dirk Bogard's character is 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 married to a woman and has children and has sort of is shown to be able to be functional in that relationship but also has relationships with men as well um, a film I watched 
recently from the decade after that 71 John Schlesinger's Sunday Bloody Sunday has Mm. the male character in a relationship with a woman and a man and they have a sort of open relationship it's not a menage a trois it's more Mm. more a sort of open relationship between him and, and and his female partner so I don't I, th- I think that because coming out as gay or straight or bisexual as sort of putting a label on it, it doesn't really feel like that's something that was going on in films. It's more mm. that's how w- when we watch these films, we're putting sort of the labels that we use now onto those characters. But actually, yeah. as is very often the case, there isn't a label to be used to describe that. I mean, you couldn't, as you say, you couldn't say that Omar is gay in this film and nor, nor could you sort of determine that retrospectively. You'd have to ask them to, mm. to identify themselves and they probably wouldn't feel a need to. That's yeah. more us sort of trying to force these things on because it makes it easier to categorise it. It's easier, it's better to say that this is a film which has... A, a queerness to it, a queer aesthetic yeah. and queer, queer narrative than it is to say that this is a gay film. Yeah, no, I, I definitely would. I suppose that is kind of something that I was not even consciously doing, but trying to kind of label him because I suppose in my mind that meant that I was understanding the conflict at play, but it's wholly unnecessary <laughs> you mention it. Yeah, it, it, it is, but we do it because... I think particularly if people want to show that there is a history of representations of queerness in film, it's easier mm-hmm. to be able to point to examples and cite, and cite them. Whereas when this film is being made, that's not what it's trying to do necessarily. It's, it's sort of, it's just representing the kind of relationships that a lot of people had in the 80s um, without feeling a need to sort of define it in any specific way I mean that correct me if I'm wrong I don't think that there's any labeling going on in this film um no one says I'm gay or I'm bi or whatever they they just have relationships and we and we see those relationships and it's all in gesture and and um as you said in sort of cine literacy and in the visual grammar of the film that we see Mm. the way that that's coded I mean obviously it's a bit more explicit in this film than perhaps in in other films you know there are scenes where Omar and Johnny are kissing and having sex and that that is quite obvious what's going on it's not just sort of there is gesture kind of there is a sexual tension that Johnny has with one of the sort of white supremacist gang members that kind of suggests he's having or he has had other relationships with men yeah what do you make of that because obviously Johnny is also a part of that or is shown to have been a part of that when we first see him in the film mm. because that make that makes the relationship that Omar has with those men quite complex yeah um it's interesting I suppose there's kind of different interpretations you could go with I mean if you're going to be totally ungenerous you would be say that Stephen Frears is at times trying to suggest that sort of the violence of white supremacy is to a degree born out of the frustration of being a closeted gay man but I I mean that's very that would be the ungenerous interpretation Um, I think the probably what's more accurate is that he is just trying to layer in a complexity to 
the what's at play with the white supremacist gang, that they are still people, they're still people, they're still conflicted, they still have relationships, they still have like wants and fears and desires and resentments because they're being screwed over by this capitalist system as much as anyone. They're squatting in you know, terrible apartments and unable to find work and things like that. So, I mean, I'm always slightly hesitant to defend having uh, gay men as the bad guys because I think we've seen far too much of it, especially when it comes to closeted gay men. But I don't believe that that's entirely what Stephen Frears is trying to do. Yeah, no. And knowing what we know about Frears and he's quite open about his sexuality and talking about it and, and his later films do that as well so I don't I don't think that he's be it's not he's not a homophobic filmmaker I'd like to think that's not what he's doing but I, I, I can imagine that that's there is um it can be read that way on a very basic level I think um but that especially is especially in the violent outburst right at the end but I don't think it's really exactly. present anywhere else so that would have to be sort of me just yeah. being very quick to cancel people yeah. I mean I don't I, actually believe in cancel culture yet here I am <laughs> trying to cancel Stephen Frizz <laughs> um yeah that 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 scene does feature the, the perhaps the schlockiest part of the film with the mm. incredibly red blood um which is yeah not, and actually if you convincing yeah no that, that I that was the end bit where I sort of laughed for at the film rather than yes. with it, which is there's a bit where Daniel Day-Lewis is being beaten up in some of like the worst stage violence I've ever seen. Like they're clearly no. not making contact with him. Yes, the editing tries to deal with it and it, it doesn't, it's not very effective, which, which is a shame really, because so much of this film does feel very, very real. And that sort of pulls you out of it. Um, yeah and they had six months I think they should have done another (laughs) take (laughs) yes but only what was it 600,000 I think yeah they were really underpaying some people yeah I don't know how they managed to stretch out a six-month shoot on 600,000 who knows people were shooting on film back then exactly so it was expensive (laughs) maybe they just did a lot of rehearsals I I don't know oh yeah that's true yeah, because it, as as we said before, it does feel quite theatrical. Mm. It could very easily be done on the stage. There's not, there aren't that many sets uh, mm. and scene changes. And having the laundrette as sort of the centerpiece works quite effectively. But that's not something that people would criticize this film for. Whereas there, there's a strange tendency to criticise films based on plays for feeling too stagey. Um, I I'm thinking, that. I'm thinking in particular of um, Fences, which I, sure. I I didn't feel was stagey at all, and yet most reviews that I read were like, they I haven't I just think it's the most boring <laughs> criticism, and it's just like, okay, if you're going to complain that One Night in Miami is too stage-like, right. then, you know, your mind will be blown by 12 angry men. I mean, it's just so tedious as a criticism of things yeah and i think a lot of it comes from just lazy critics who are just trying to say the obvious thing definitely and there'll be that thing of like well malcolm and marie or um the party by sally potter can't possibly be non-cinematic because they shot them in black and white which obviously adds this whole different (laughs) layer to the film yeah the less said about malcolm and marie perhaps 
the better. I refused to watch Malcolm and Marie because the Twitter discourse was so bad. I was like, I just don't want to have any part in this. But I, I like a sort of quote unquote stagey thing. I saw a really great film out of Sundance called um, Mass, which I really liked. And it set the entire thing set in one room mm. and it was written for the screen. But I mean, it very clearly could be a play. Yeah. Um, I, I, don't know. I just think it's um, there's no judgment in uh, saying that something is stagey or something is cinematic, unless you follow it up with some int- something interesting on that subject. Because as a blanket statement, I just think it's really boring. So when people start talking about aspect ratios in their reviews, I'm like, well, you know, think of something else. Yeah, unless unless it just feels completely pointless to do it in a different aspect ratio. I mean, I saw the trailer for Justice League, the Zack Snyder cut, and it's in 4-3 for absolutely no reason, except for it to be sort of artsy. Oh God, the Snyder cut is the embodiment yeah. of everything that's wrong with the universe. <laughs> but in, in the case of My Beautiful Laundrette, it, mm. the stress is on the dialogue and on these sort of very, on, on the small world in which these people exist um and if that if that means that it's it feels like the sort of um closed drama that a play would be then so be it there's definitely a cause for that type of film and often they can be some of the best film. i mean one of my favorite films is is actually a filmed play um jean mm. letters home which is incredibly hard to find but it's it's just a it's just delphine sayrig and her niece acting on a stage and being filmed and i i think that 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 can be as beautiful a piece of film and as moving and as interesting and complex yeah. as any film which has i don't know a hundred different settings yeah because i think it's it's true to life experience i mean like if we're talking about storytelling sometimes stories that we have in our own lives felt like they took place in just a couple of rooms and over just a few conversations and that was a complete formative instance so yeah I I I see no issue with how small this film feels at times yeah I mean especially for me growing up in Sudan like life was like you know confined to very few locations yeah Absolutely. I mean, if there's a sort of modern equivalent and comparison that can be made with this film, it almost feels like um, it reminded me at times of some of the small axe films, particularly of, of Lover's mm. Rock in the way that that's in that way that that's set and, and, and filmed. Where, you know, you wouldn't say that Lover's Rock should be done on the stage. I mean, it couldn't be uh, because the no. way that it, the way that the camera moves, it almost becomes sort of character in itself in, the, in moving through that that party scene small axe is is very much the the closest that someone has really come to making to reviving the play for today sort of format of, yeah. um anthology type not not theater based but but certainly one-off dramas in a in a yeah. series format but obviously steve mcqueen's able to go further it than Frears was in 85 at dealing with the racial representation that that my my beautiful laundrette strives for yeah that's certainly fair but it is um interesting that both do seem to have been born out of just a lot of freedom a lot of kind of freedom to tell talk about something quite specific and you know just be a little bit left alone by you know channel 4 the bbc in small x's case and kind of you know you go you make us a film and tell us how it goes i 
been doing a bit of research into small acts of late and it's amazing how much of it is just like oh well we just had the camera and we didn't know what we were going to do and we started filming and the DOP of that series is this guy Xavier Kirchner who um, uh, some of it was film and some of it was um, shot on digital but he's like this uh, very accomplished skateboarder and he just get right into the middle of the Lovers Rocks dance scenes or the crowd scenes in Mangrove and kind of with his just sort of kinetic ability with gravity and able to just sort of spin and move and react to everyone is how we got these great shots. And there's a few really great shots in my beautiful laundrette as well. There's one where they come from the back of the laundrette straight over the top as the thugs are plotting the downfall of the laundrette, which I just thought was really stunningly beautiful, especially for such a low budget film. Yeah, definitely. I wonder if that's because these are films financed and produced by television studios rather than sort of film studios which are worrying about how much money it's going to make and there's pressures to make the films fit in within a certain standard, whereas the, mm. the, the freedom comes from, with television, the budgets are smaller, but th there's, there's, there's more room to tell these sorts of stories than perhaps mm. than perhaps there is in a lot of mainstream films I mean this is this is probably why while, while I don't like to see things like Netflix dominating the, the production of things the fact that they're able to make so much and they're able to finance really quite experimental and interesting mm. projects that actually that can lead to stories of representation particularly um the financing queer and female filmmakers netflix is actually doing a lot better yeah. than most hollywood studios are um at getting behind those projects so, so, so maybe, maybe we get something phenomenal like remy weeks is his house and then we get malcolm and marie not long after so yeah <laughs> or emily in paris or emily in paris oh as <laughs> yes, we've been told it we rhymes, must, doesn't it it rhymes oh my god it rhymes horrendous <laughs> Yeah, so I, you're exactly right. The, the fact that they can sort of play around with it and see what people mm. respond to and what people appreciate. I mean, it devastates me that something like the Wachowskis Sense8 got cancelled after two series because supposedly it wasn't being watched by enough people. But then they were spending something like $6 million an episode, whereas if they were making something a bit more low budget, maybe they'd, yeah. they'd have been able to continue to make something that does speak to in the eyes of these studios a, a more niche or minority audience than perhaps something like Emily in Paris is aiming to reach out to yeah so Leila where, where can people see this film if they want to check it out yeah I was worried it was going to be like a bit of a nightmare because I suggested it to you before um, I actually checked whether it was available but it you can find, rent it from Amazon for a pound that's good. That a is a wonderful good. investment a way to spend a pound. Yeah. Especially given that Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar is $13.99. Or yes. you could rent this 13 times. So I, I'd recommend that. Yes, very much so. And I, I think I have it on DVD from Film 4, which normally go on Amazon for like £3 or you can get it. Yeah, it's a very accessible film. It's not a particularly hard to find film, I would say. I think probably has been rightfully preserved. Um, and I think because it's kind of got this Stephen Frears and kind of national, no, well, not a classic, but a bit of a kind of status of, as being like a good British film, 
people might be surprised by how subversive and unusual it is. Um, so I hope um, kind of a younger generation comes through again and appreciates it. So I really like it. Yeah, yeah, no, we, we wholeheartedly recommend uh, My Beautiful Laundra. So thank you very much, Layla. Pleasure. If you've got an idea for an article or a podcast, you can contact me via Twitter. My handle is at Lil Craw for three hours in Lil, which is where I'll be posting about new writing and episodes. Do also get in touch if you fancy appearing as a guest and have a film you'd love to discuss with me. The Listen to Lillian podcast is available via the blog and all the usual channels, including Spotify, Google and Apple Podcasts, so don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. All that remains for me to say is thank you for listening and toodle pip!